The Midrash, an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says, No position in the world is so despised as that of the shepherd. And yet, shepherds were the only ones God invited to the celebration of the birth of his son. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part two of The Birth Announcement of God's Son. Think about each element of the biblical Christmas story, the lowly shepherds, a rundown manger, the little town of Bethlehem, and of course, the baby boy. What makes each piece of this account so unique? Why should people today care about what happened to a few sheep herders over 2,000 years ago? Because, as you'll be reminded today, the Christmas story is so much more than just a story. It's the true historical account of the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah, born to set his people free, the hope of all the earth, the one who will bring peace on earth and make all things right again. But how? Let's find out as we join our teacher right here on The Word Unleashed. You remember the glory cloud accompanied Israel on most of their journey out of Egypt in the Exodus. It was the pillar of fire that led them by night and the the blazing cloud that led them by day. When the tabernacle and later the temple was built, God brought his presence in a visible way in the Shekinah. It settled down, that blazing cloud settled down on the tabernacle and on the temple in order to demonstrate to his people that he really was present among them, that that holy of holies was his own personal throne room from which he ruled his people. But sadly, because of Israel's sin and her rebellion and her idolatry, eventually that manifestation of God's presence, that brilliant, blazing cloud of light deserted his people. If you've ever read Ezekiel, you've read the tragic story as as Ezekiel pictures that glory cloud, the Shekinah lifting from the temple, lingering for a moment over the gates of the temple, and then going to the gates of the city, and then to the mountain overlooking the city, and then disappearing into the distance as the visible manifestation of God's presence leaves. That was 600 years before Christ. And there was never again another appearance of that blazing glory cloud until that cold December night. It happened just shortly thereafter again in directing the wise men to the Magi, to the house where Jesus was living with his parents in Bethlehem. That wasn't a celestial event. Couldn't stand over a house and direct them to a particular house. It was the glory cloud, almost certainly. We know for sure that it was the glory cloud at the transfiguration. In Jesus' ministry, when the the disciples were overwhelmed, the three disciples were overwhelmed by this the demonstration of the glory of Christ. It appeared yet again at the ascension. When Jesus left this earth, it says it, the clouds received him up. Don't think white puffy clouds. Think the blazing glory cloud of God's presence. There was no question but what Christ was all that he claimed. The next time 
the Shekinah appears, it'll be at the second coming. He comes with clouds. But that first Christmas night, the blazing cloud of God's glory appeared and it flashed and brilliantly lit up the entire area around the angel and the shepherds that night. When you understand that, it's perfectly understandable that verse 9 says, they were terribly frightened. An angel and the Shekinah, they knew they were in the presence of God. And they knew the voice they heard was an angel speaking for God. So these poor, despised shepherds are the unlikely audience of God's birth announcement for his son. Next in Luke's narrative, he shares another detail with us, and it's the the grand announcement itself, what God said. It's found in verses 10 through 14. Notice verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Notice he begins his message, and now you understand why, with do not be afraid. Can I just stop here and make an important theological point? You and I ought to fear God in the sense that we stand in awe of him, we respect him, we honor him, we fear disobeying him and bringing displeasure to him. That is absolutely right. But we ought not to live in slavish fear and dread of him. I love Romans eight fifteen. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ... This is what Paul says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 1 John 4.18 says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. John is saying, listen, when you come to understand God's love for you in Christ, and when you respond in love to him, then that that abject, terrorizing kind of fear that drives you away from God is no longer a reality. Instead, you experience the right kind of fear of him, what Derek Kidner calls the poles of awe and intimacy. So after an angel or God himself appear to man, appears to man, the first words most often are what? Do not be afraid. The angel continues, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news. The expression, I bring good news is actually one Greek verb. It's one of Luke's favorite words. In fact, he uses this word more than any other New Testament author in in Luke and in the other book he wrote, Acts. It literally means I announce or I proclaim good news. Sometimes it's translated, I, I announce or I proclaim the gospel. Understand the word gospel is not a Greek word. The word gospel is an English word, an old English word made up of two old English words, Goad, meaning good, and spell, meaning story or news. Gospel is simply good news or the good story. It's an English word. The Greek word simply means I announce or proclaim good news. Initially, this Greek word was used to describe the announcement of good news of any kind. Eventually, it came to be used more 
specifically. We use the word good news like this. I mean, right? I mean, you walk up to someone and you say, I have good news. But eventually in the New Testament, it came to be used almost exclusively of the good news of spiritual salvation through Jesus Christ. This good news was the focus of the ministry of John the Baptist. Turn over to Luke chapter 3, verse 18. We read this. So with many other exhortations, John preached the gospel. Literally, he announced or proclaimed the good news to the people. That was the focus of his ministry, proclaiming the good news. Same thing was true with the ministry of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 42. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him, tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Literally, I must announce or proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. In other words, I have come with a message of good news that you can get into my spiritual kingdom. And notice what he says, the end of verse 43, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus said, listen, I came to bring the good news about your being able to enter the spiritual kingdom over which God rules. When you survey this word throughout the New Testament, it's interesting because you'll find attached to it the content of the good news. If you search the word that we're seeing here throughout the New Testament, you'll hear the good news described like this. It's described as liberty for captives, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the spiritually blind. It's described as good news about the kingdom of God, as we just saw. It's described as good news about Jesus Christ, good news about peace with God through Jesus Christ, Good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Good news about the unfathomable riches of Christ. Good news about the promise of a Savior made to the fathers. No wonder when the angel says it's good news, he immediately explains that this good news, notice verse 10, will be a source of great joy. Great joy. You know, I know these are busy and distracting times, the holidays. I know that many, perhaps you, are going through great hardship in your life. Those can be causes for discouragement, for being despondent. Listen, if you really understand what's being announced and what you've come to participate in, you can have great joy. John Calvin writes, these words show us that until men have peace with God and are reconciled to him through the grace of Christ... All the joy that they experience is deceitful and of short duration. The commencement or the beginning of solid joy is to perceive the love of God toward us, which alone gives tranquility to our minds. It's only when you begin to understand the love that God has demonstrated in Christ and you respond to that love in faith and obedience that you really experience great joy. There is no greater joy than the reality of the salvation brought to us in Christ. I really don't care what's happening to you right now and how bad it is. If you can grasp this announcement, if you can grasp the reality of what we celebrate in this season, you can experience great mega joy, the Greek says. 
Remember when the disciples came back from their missionary ministry and they were all excited about what God enabled them to do? And in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus says this to them. Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but instead rejoice or find your joy in this, that your names are recorded in heaven. There's something to be joyful about. It doesn't really matter what happens here. Your name is recorded in God's book. Your eternity is settled. You're God's child. Notice the angel says, That this great joy, this good news which produces great joy, verse 10, will be for all the people. The most common meaning of this expression when it's used in the singular as it is here, the people, singular, is the people of Israel. And certainly God was bringing salvation for his people Israel. Zacharias mentioned this in in his prophecy. You remember after in Luke chapter 1... Verse 68, after John was born and Zacharias could speak again, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, verse 68 of chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Israel certainly would benefit from the good news, but the angel here means more than just the Jewish people. This message of good news is universal in its scope. In fact, look at Luke chapter 2, just a few verses later. Luke chapter 2 You remember that Jesus is presented at the temple uh, according to the law of purification. And there, Mary and Joseph meet a man named Simeon. Verse 28 of Luke 2, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your slave to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. This child is the one who's going to bring salvation And notice, it is a salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, plural, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So when the angel said, shall be for all the people, he meant it is a piece of good news for the whole world. But what is the good news that produces great joy and is intended for the whole world? The answer comes back in chapter 2, verse 11. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here is the heart of the gospel. Here is the reason we celebrate at Christmas. Through this child, God is bringing a Savior. He will accomplish man's complete spiritual rescue. In fact, this is the reason Jesus came. It's not a coincidence that God commanded Joseph to name the baby Jesus, to call the Messiah Jesus. You see, the Greek word for Jesus is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, a Hebrew name. In English, it's Joshua. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. The name Jesus is simply that. It's Joshua. It's Yeshua into Greek. What does Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus mean? It means Yahweh saves. 
Yahweh rescues. That's why in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel Gabriel says to Joseph, she, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Call him Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. He came as the Savior John 3, 17, God sent his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him. John 12, 47, Jesus says, I came to save the world. Now, what do we mean when we talk about Jesus saving us or rescuing us or his being a savior? The Hebrew word is often, the Hebrew word to save is often used in the Old Testament of rescuing someone from physical danger or physical harm or distress. Sometimes, occasionally, the Hebrew word is used of spiritual rescue. But when you come to the New Testament, the Greek word to save and the noun form savior refer primarily to spiritual rescue, to God's personal rescue of a person from the penalty his sin deserves at the judgment. Did you hear that? That's the rescue. It's God rescuing sinners from what their sin deserves when they stand before him at the judgment. But don't miss the crucial point this word Savior makes. Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who must do the rescuing. You can't rescue yourself You contribute nothing to your rescue. Our spiritual rescue was initiated by the sovereign work of the Father in eternity past. It was accomplished by the sovereign work of the Son in his voluntary death for sin. And it is applied to individuals by the sovereign work of the Spirit, who, like the wind, blows wherever he wills. God is always the Savior He is the one who has to take the initiative in man's salvation. Think about the very first sin, Adam's sin. How did Adam respond when he sinned? Did he go looking for God? No, he hid. He hid from God. And that's how man always responds to his sin. He runs from God. He hides from God. That's why Paul says there is no one who seeks after God. Instead, with Adam... The second person of the Trinity went searching for Adam. Adam, where are you? He knew where he was. He wanted Adam to know where he was. And the rest of the Old Testament is filled with God seeking sinners, taking the initiative to rescue them. The New Testament is filled with similar examples. I love the example of the Apostle Paul. Listen, Paul wasn't seeking Jesus Christ. He was on the road to Damascus to imprison, torture, and kill those who were his followers. But Jesus rescued Paul from himself. The story of Zacchaeus. Listen, Zacchaeus wasn't looking for spiritual redemption that day. He climbed the tree out of curiosity to see what everybody else was seeing. But Jesus stands at the base of that tree, and what does he say to him? Zacchaeus, come down, because I have to go to your house today. And you know how Jesus finishes that story? In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the reason he had to go to Zacchaeus' house that day. God is still pursuing sinners today. He does so through the message 
of the good news explained again. He's doing it right here as I'm speaking to you. Let me show this to you. Turn to what you know is my favorite passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 18 that he has been reconciled to God through Christ. God has done this. And God has given to Paul the ministry of reconciliation, telling other people they can be reconciled to God. Verse 19, namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was saving. God was initiating this reconciliation. And he did so through the death of Christ, not counting their trespasses against them, but against Christ, as verse 21 explains. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. Now watch verse 20. Paul says, therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. We are his official representatives. And when we share this message of reconciliation, it is as though God were making an appeal through us. Paul says, when when I share the good news, it's as if God is speaking through that message, appealing to you to be reconciled to him. He says, verse 20, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, Christ also, it's as if he is pleading with you through us to be reconciled to God. Listen, you know I believe strongly in the sovereignty of God and salvation. But God, whenever the gospel message is proclaimed, whenever the gospel is preached as it is here this morning, God is in that message pleading with sinners to respond and to be reconciled to him. Because God doesn't delight in the death of anyone. At Jesus' birth, the angel made it clear that the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry was not to be a teacher of morality. He didn't come into this world to serve as a social reformer, correcting all of the social ills of first century Israel and the Roman Empire. He was not a political reformer who through his nonviolent resistance came to bring about desperately needed political change. Instead, he came to be the savior, the rescuer of the world. He came to seek and to save individuals who were desperately lost. He came to save his people from their sins, as Gabriel said. Listen, Christian, as you celebrate Christmas this year, I want you to remind yourself that the reason Jesus came in the form of that little infant, the reason he became everything you are except for sin, was because he was sent here on a divine rescue mission, a rescue mission from God. It was a mission, Christian, to rescue you from the absolutely certain verdict and sentence that you would receive someday when you stand before God at the judgment. If you've not believed in Jesus, then understand that even as I'm teaching this morning, as Paul said, God and Christ are in the words of the good news I've shared with you, pleading with you to be reconciled to God. Because if you don't, If nothing changes, someday, according to Hebrews, it is appointed that a man wants to die. You're going to die. And after this, the judgment, you are as certainly going to stand before God in judgment as certainly as you will die. And if the story is unchanged before that day, Jesus says the verdict of guilty and the sentence of eternal hell are absolutely settled. And he came 
to rescue you from that verdict and that sentence that your sins deserve. But you must repent of your sins and you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. The heart of Christmas is this. There has been born for you a Savior, a Rescuer. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of The Birth Announcement of God's Son. Tom will have part three for us next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.